0: Coming up on Novell Open Audio, how to expand your network and cut costs with Open Enterprise Server 2 SP1. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. And I'm Randy Goddard. And Randy, today we have an exciting announcement, don't we?
0: We do. What is it? OES2.
1: SP1 is officially released it is officially released people can go to just download.novel.com and get it and randy you and i actually recently had a chance to sit down and talk to jason and sophia about this
0: yeah we did you know and they went very much in detail as to the additions and enhancements that are included with sp1 yeah there's actually a ton
1: of stuff in there it's not a normal service pack this is just chock full of goodies it is let's go ahead and take a listen to what sophia and jason have to say
0: In the studio today, Aaron and I are happy to welcome Sophia Germanides. Welcome. Thank you, Randy. We're also happy to welcome Jason Williams. Randy, good to see you guys. Guys,
1: we invite you in the studio today to talk to us about OES 2 SP1. So let's get a good overview of what SP1 is. Was there like a, a theme or something you were going for in this release?
2: Actually, uh, we're talking about it as the interoperability release because some new features are coming out now with SP1 that weren't available in 2.0 and that really deliver more on the promise of interoperability. You know, we know our customers have mixed environments. Some have, most have some Windows in their environment. Some have Macintosh. You know, more and more are introducing Linux. And with Open Enterprise Server 2, SP1, they get new features and capabilities that allow all those platforms to coexist and be managed and administered in a simplified way.
1: Now, when you say interoperability, are you talking about in between uh, Windows servers and Macintosh servers, or are you talking servers, clients, the whole thing?
2: There's a lot of different pieces. Um, One of the most anticipated features of this product is called Domain Services for Windows. And what that allows uh, customers to do is establish cross-directory trust between eDirectory and Active Directory so that an administrator can actually manage users from one central console, even Microsoft Management Console. And that allows the mixed environments to operate more as one.
0: And I know Jason would be happy to expand on this topic. So you mentioned Microsoft management console. Are you saying that we can manage both Active Directory users and eDirectory users either through the
3: MMC or through for example iManager? Microsoft management console will allow you to administer the users in both Active Directory and eDirectory. Okay. Right now iManager won't do Active Directory users, but but in fact that's not really what the original intent of the product was.
1: Can we take a second and just dive deep into technology for a second? I'm assuming this is totally different than what we've done with Identity
3: Manager in the past, right? Absolutely. In fact, Identity Manager still has a crucial role to play in identity infrastructure. By no means does domain services for Windows, in fact, replace Identity Manager. It's it's complementary to what you can do. Identity Manager, as we know, is the idea of taking... And a single authoritative directory, something like eDirectory, and then allowing users to be provisioned into other directory infrastructures like Active Directory, but also branching out into things like Oracle, PeopleSoft, SAP, and the like. What Domain Services for Windows does is completely different. This allows you to have two directory infrastructures sharing a common authentication, login, and authorization infrastructure. So an example, if you will, Kerberos. Kerberos. Precisely. We also use a lot of the actual methods that Microsoft use. In fact, we looked at all of the APIs that Microsoft use: secure Tsig updates for you know for DNS, secure time, secure DHCP, GSS API, everything that Microsoft uses in order to do its job in Active Directory, and we've simply implemented that as a virtualization layer for eDirectory. So,
1: Whoa, hang on for a second. So that means when I go and authenticate, the eDirectory server can actually create the Kerberos authentication ticket for me?
3: Absolutely, 100%. In fact, it works so well that we're noticing that applications that are looking for an AD-style login, a Kerberos ticket, and everything else, believe fully that they've logged in to Active Directory, even though they're talking to eDirectory.
1: So actually, eDirectory then appears as if it's a domain controller, Right
3: to the point where in fact if you have a windows workstation you can instantiate a standard windows style login to an active directory domain pick the domain name up the same way you would do with a windows workstation login authenticate authorize your workstation is added to eDirectory as a workstation object, and you receive a full Kerberos ticket and domain credential. Wow, that's impressive. In fact, MMC, here's here's the big trick. If you want to see this working, create domain services for Windows Server. You can do it in a new tree or an existing tree. We actually create a new directory infrastructure to allow that to happen, so you will see it to the side of your current organizational unit structure so you don't get the two confused. You can map users from an existing eDirectory container over, so they can log into Active Directory. You can log in as the administrator, so you actually use the administrator credentials that you create at the time you create your new AD domain, run MMC, and you will see the users. You will see the groups. You can even do Windows group policies. Wow.
1: So even MMC can't tell the difference between a standard domain controller and an e-directory server.
3: When it comes to users and groups, it has no idea that it's talking... Uh, to e-directory. The only way you know is if you go to the server object, right-click it and do properties, it comes out and says SUSE Linux Enterprise Server 10.
1: So I'm assuming we put this code in because customers have just been clamoring for interoperability in between the two?
3: The customer problem
2: is that they're maintaining two infrastructures in most cases, a Novell infrastructure and a Microsoft infrastructure. And they're really under pressure for the sake of efficiencies and costs to simplify. But the cost of a rip and replace is, is brutal. The effort, the risk involved with rip and replace is brutal. Sure. And this feature allows them to, to achieve simplification without ripping and replacing any of the costs, any of the benefits associated with that.
1: So I've got a bunch of deep technical questions on this, but probably what's best is if we do a dedicated episode in the next coming months that talks about domain services for Windows. Okay, so we started out talking about interoperability. We talked about domain services for Windows. What other interoperability stuff do you have in the OES SP1?
2: One of the big features coming out in SP1 is also the enhanced support for the AFP and SIF stack. Yeah! Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If you've got Macintosh clients in your environment, you are psyched about this, let me tell you. This is a, a real upgrade from what uh, shipped with the prior version of the product, which was just the open source Talk. With this version, customers with Macintosh and their environment are going to see all the scalability and performance that they had when they had Macintoshes connected to their network network. We, we meet and even exceed the performance for Macintosh on the network with this with this release.
1: So it's the same stuff that I used to see where now all of a sudden my OES servers come up and appear on the wire as if they're straight Mac servers, right?
3: Absolutely. In fact, we've gone a, a couple of steps further as well. The whole point and concept is we integrated the eDirectory username and password. So whatever your eDirectory identity is, that passes along for the Mac identity. You log in, authenticate. We actually now support the full, getting technical for a minute, DHX2, Diffie-Hellman 2 uh, Authentication Authorization Mechanism that Mac X uses. That's different to what we've had in the past. Uh, resource forks are there. Yay! I know, people have been asking for that. Scalability is really good. We're um, looking at 1,500 client scalability, active clients on a single server. Wow. Which is really good. And we've integrated the entire thing with Universal Password. Now, the great thing there is Universal Password means you can have a web page. The end user can go change the password on a web page, and that goes around to every service, including AFP, domain services for Windows, the SysStack, everything. So it's a really, really easy integration.
1: So we, we talked about AFS. We didn't hit on the changes in SIFS.
3: Yeah, changes in SIFS. Now, worth pointing out, because immediately people listening to this will go, well, hang on a minute, you've got domain services for Windows and a Windows connection. What's going uh-huh. on here? Uh-huh. So we have two competing sets of users. Set A are those that actually want the whole Active Directory infrastructure. They want the Kerberos ticket. They want the domain integration and all that. We have another set of users that just want to map a drive, and that's it. They don't need any of the complex authentication and overhead associated with something like Active Directory. So what you do with the SIF stack is you can just enable this thing on a server, and you do what amounts to a standard NTLM, you know, the old LAN manager-style login. Again, through universal passwords, so if you change your password somewhere, it goes down to that stack as well. Bang, you just have a drive mapping, and that's it. Very right simple, very easy, and we have a large set of customers that want that as well. Uh, The long-term plan is to grow the sort of Novell SIF stack and domain services for Windows so they get closer together so you can choose the personality. We're not quite there yet, but we're looking out now into the future about how we actually need sort of grow and change these things to meet the needs of our customers.
1: And since we're talking about storage, i got to ask about one of my favorite products that you guys have bundled in, iFolder. What's happening with iFolder?
3: Oh, boy, a lot. So iFolder 3.7 is a huge refresh over iFolder 3.2. We listened really, really heavily to what our customers were were telling us, what they liked about iFolder 3.2, what they liked about iFolder 2.1, what they didn't like about 3.2, what they didn't like about 2.1. We've really listened to all those comments and we can say in all honesty that 3.7 is the amalgam of what people loved about 2.1, you know, having the encrypted iFolder, that kind of thing. 3.7, 3.7, we include a new set of clients. So, client support Windows XP, Windows Vista 32 bit, Windows Vista 64 bit, obviously Linux, SUSE Linux 32, SLED 32 bit, SLED 64 bit, and get ready for this Mac OS X.
1: Oh, I know. I'm actually started running the client this week, and I, I gotta say, I love it because the yeah. Mac client's been kind of out of date for a little while on iFolder. It, it
3: really has. Do you know what the cool thing about running iFolder inside an organization that I really love? Since iFolder 3, we've had this ability to do simple sharing. Yeah. And for some people, that's good enough. It's never going to be something like Novell Teaming or Teaming plus Conferencing. We know that that's going to be You know, looking at the future. That is really where the, sort of that kind of team collaboration happens. But the simple sharing in iFolder, it's really good to be able to take a folder that's on a Windows Vista desktop. And share it, and you have that same folder appearing on Linux desktops, Mac desktops, and through the web. And when you update that file, you edit it or save it. I mean, OpenOffice is obviously one of the, the big things here. Is save a file in OpenOffice, and you get that and open it on all those other workstations. Yeah, nice. there's no translation required. That file is there. I mean, something stupid I do. I use Linux, Mac, and Windows desktops. You know, I do. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah, <laughs> I actually store my GroupWise instant messenger conversations in iFolder and then I point my GroupWise Instant Messenger at my iFolder. So no matter where I am, my conversations replicate around all my desktops. So I always have a conversation list that's up to date wherever I am, just it's simple. You can do that for things like bookmarks and stuff like that. So it's really cool.
1: Yeah, and that cheat works on a lot of things. I did that for years with Tomboy Notes before we had uh, Network Sync built into Tomboy. So you can just use that as your replication uh, method. The other thing is you hit on the sharing of iFolders. And I gotta tell you, that's really helped us out internally. Um, If I look at the systems and resource management team, one of the things we've done is we created an iFolder for all of our TSs or our SEs out in the field, and we keep all of the latest presentations, the latest demo scripts, the latest, you know, internal evaluation licenses, anything those guys need to do their job, we put in that folder, and that way we're guaranteed, again, no matter what client they run, they have access to this data. So we've talked about interoperability. What were some of the other themes that you were concentrating on with this release?
2: Dynamic storage technology is probably my favorite part of this product. It it, it did come out in 2.0, but it has to be front and center for anyone. You know, now SP1 is a critical buying event for customers. Many customers can't really deploy a product at the .0 release, right? So it's definitely worth bringing this up again today because with dynamic storage technology, what we know is that about 80% of the unstructured data that sits on on a corporate file system, probably hasn't been touched in six months, we call that stale data. But yet most companies are backing that up every night along with all the the important relevant files that, that are active at the time. This product automates, based on policies, it automates the tiering, the removal of stale data from that primary expensive SAN, it's usually a SAN, to less expensive disk storage. It's completely transparent to the end user. If the end user saves it in file folder XYZ and they need to retrieve it, they'll get it exactly where they put it. But for the administrator, it allows the backup window to shrink and also the management and purchasing of expensive storage space grows at such a smaller pace because you can offload the stale data to much cheaper storage. This is a feature that we have seen in corporate environments that can save up to 75% of a company's storage spend in the first year. I mean, you, you can't pass it up. When you shipped OES 2, we actually did a dedicated episode
1: just talking about this, and we'll put links into it in the show notes so that people can go listen to it. Are there any major updates that happened in SP1 that people should be made aware of, or is it just the same code, we've just made it more stable, more scalable? Any new features that we want to talk about?
2: We just want to get the message out there about what the benefit provides of the customer. Because customers are today, with SP1, really piloting and considering deployment of the product, I just have to make sure this is front and center in their in their minds.
3: Yeah, in fact, um, I was uh, visiting some customers just a couple of weeks ago, and it was amazing to me <clears throat> that two of the larger customers I visited, I mean, we start, I started talking about dynamic storage technology, they were aware of it, but just reiterating the point for Support Pack 1, immediately they were like, oh, yeah, you know, that is going to save us money because, let's face it, disk is cheap. I could go out to any one of the websites or any one of the any one. The one store that still exists in this economy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you can go buy something from brick and mortar. But you could go buy a really big disk, you know, one terabyte plus disk. It's not going to cost you much. A SAN is a completely different prospect. They're big, they're heavy, they consume a lot of power, and they require a lot of cooling. And frankly, I mean, we've said it before, SANs are the storage is the hummer of, yeah. the, of the IT industry because it requires constant attention, constant feeding, of information, constant backup, constant attention. Why wouldn't you want to look at something that could reduce the overhead of that kind of thing? And you're not sacrificing any of your performance. That's the great thing. It's not as if I'm telling you to give up a SAN. I'm telling you, you can keep keep hold of that SAN and just implement a lower cost storage medium somewhere else in your infrastructure and relocate that stale data to there and still have it available to the end users without without any kind of retraining, without the need to touch the desktop.
1: And that's what I really love about this is we've had this theory about doing, you know, lower cost storage for files that you don't touch often has been around the industry forever. It's stuff that we've had uh, even in our products over the past decade. The difference is the fact that it doesn't affect the end user. It's not one of those things you go to access the file and you get a message that says, whoa, you got to wait until we restore it from tape.
0: Stand by.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the end user totally oblivious to this. Absolutely. There's dozens of hierarchical storage management products out there. This does what nothing else does, complete transparency to the end user. Yeah.
1: And since we're really talking about uh, how OES 2 can save you money, um, let's take a second and talk about one of my favorite areas, which is, what are you guys doing with VMs and uh, server consolidation?
3: Yeah, actually, there's a lot going on there as well. Obviously, you know, OES2 is built on SUSE Linux Enterprise Server 10, so in OES2 SP1 we're pulling in and requiring SLES 10 SP2. That's a good thing. You know, there's been some significant updates in Slice 10 SP2, so we're really pleased that we're there and supporting Slice 10 SP2. The Zen Hypervisor, you know, the virtualization engine that's included in SUSE Linux Enterprise Server 10, we're right there. In fact, it's probably worth looking at that just briefly, is the fact that it's worth reminding everyone that when it comes to Open Enterprise Server 2 and hardware support OES 2 is built in SLES 10 which means any piece of hardware that has a certificate for SLES 10 OES 2 is grandfathered in. What that means is there's no additional testing required there's no additional certificate required from the hardware vendor and that also extends into the hypervisor. So when you're looking at all the benefits from doing server consolidation putting low utilization or medium utilization servers onto a much bigger piece of iron that you can get these days Good lord, was it? Four cores and eight sockets and thirty-two way and I don't know. It's just insane. But I mean, let's face it, that scalability is there now to allow to do that kind of thing. No additional hardware cert required. Now you virtualize netware into a into a virtual machine on that. You're guaranteed that's gonna run because Novella the one's writing the drivers for netware for Zen. Novell has provided a lot of the code for the Zen hypervisor. Novell is the one certifying the operating system that the Zen hypervisor is on and then the hardware underneath it has a certificate. So you're looking at that entire virtualization stack that applies for NetWare, for Linux and for Windows. Let's face it, that stack is fully guaranteed right from the the point of application that people are using that server right down to the hardware underneath.
1: Let's talk about that for just a second. So I know normally under Gen what we see is you only take probably a three to about a 6% performance hit by running virtualized. If we're doing paravirtualization, virtualization I assume we're doing the same thing with OES.
3: To be honest with you, I've always said this, and it's the same with any virtualization infrastructure from be it Zen or VMware or Hyper-V or anything else. It depends massively on what you're doing with the server. A- absolutely, heavy um, IOs yeah, are totally I mean, different. Sure. That's it. We. Always... I mean, we've, we've said for a long time, and I did a virtualization session at Brainshare last year and this year, and it's always the same thing. What is the workload that you're actually trying to virtualize? We've done it here internally, the fact that we used to run eight physical servers in a cluster for our LDAP. So the whole of Novell's LDAP was run through eight physical servers in a clustered environment for failover. We've moved to a split four physical, four virtual. Okay. So, so we are saving a lot of hardware costs there ourselves, and also a footprint in the data center is really good. Now something like LDAP makes a really good virtualization candidate. It's not very heavy I.O., sporadic I.O. You could load up four VMs quite happily on a single physical machine. It's not constantly chatting. That's right. Now, would you want to put a really high performing database running on a you know a sparse file backed disk? Probably not, because what you're looking for in a database is really high performance. So the great thing about this end hypervisor though is you can do a file backed disk, you can do an iSCSI connection. If the driver exists, you can surface, you know, a physical card into the virtual machine, so you can actually talk directly to that physical card and then out to the hardware device. So we've always said to customers, understand your workload. When it comes to, you know, memory and I/O operations, quite frankly, you know, we're looking at some some superb throughput and and near physical performance. And there is, in fact, with the hardware vendors, you take a I can't cough to too much because I don't know what's been publicly announced. But there's a lot happening in the future that's going to really significantly improve, even again, the performance of a a virtual machine, right up to very, very close to physical performance under, under a lot of different circumstances.
1: And I do want to remind our listeners that because of the PlateSpin acquisition, we actually have fantastic tools out there that help you go out and take a look and analyze all of the different things that are going on on your servers and help you decide what is the best way to actually consolidate those servers and which servers does it make sense to let it actually run on iron. Don't try to virtualize Not it. Not
0: to mention the P 2 V and V 2 V. Oh, yeah. And
1: migration. we can actually help you with the physical migration from physical to virtual, virtual to virtual, or virtual to physical.
3: Yeah, so a lot of different options out there. And, of course, the migration tools that we've included have just improved that over and over again. So his bold statement. You know know me. I come (laughs) into these things and make silly statements, and I'm going to do it again. When you take take a look at the new tools, and really, they're upgrade tools. They're not migration tools. They're about upgrading your network infrastructure and moving to this new kernel and getting the wealth of hardware support and applications that you get on Linux today. You can take a running NetWare server, NetWare 5.1, NetWare 6.0, NetWare 6.5, and you can move everything on that server. So you can select all of the services, you can say, okay, I want to move the file system, the directory, I want to move printing, iFolder, I want to move NTP, DNS, DHCP, and I just want to pick those all up, I want to move them to a Linux server. Oh, not only do I want to move them but I want to move the server's personality. So I've got a NetWare 5.1 server called, well, let's call it Server 1. <laughs> For those people who've been around a while, they'll recognize yeah. that. <laughs> You've got Server 1 that's running NetWare. You start the upgrade tools, you point it at your, your Linux server, and you say, I want Server 1 to be this Linux server now. And it will do everything. It'll move the directory infrastructure, it'll move the IP addresses, DNS, everything that's on that server. You reboot that Linux server, it's now Server 1.
2: The server identity upgrade tool is something that our customers requested. It solves a tremendous problem for the administrator and what they asked for, we
0: deliver with SP1. This this sounds a lot like NetWare Only Better.
3: It really is. It, in fact, the Server Consolidation and Migration Toolkit is still out there for people that want to do NetWare to NetWare migrations. We understand that, yes, SP1 is really the place to go. We also understand there's a lot of customers with very complex infrastructures that are going to want to move NetWare to NetWare, and we're going to allow them to do that. So this, the SCMT is still out there. But you take a look at these migration tools, it's easier to move a running NetWare server to Linux and it is NetWare to NetWare now. Because we can identify all those services on the NetWare server and migrate those whole things to Linux, reboot, and there you have it. You've upgraded your NetWare 5.1 server to OES2 SP1, and it's the same server name.
2: You know, I love what you said, Randy. Just like NetWare, only better. Because I think so many of our customers are really coming to appreciate and understand the benefits of Linux, but I know there are customers out there who are still, you know, a little dubious about, you know, what Linux can do for them.
0: That's putting it nicely. We have tons that are actually terrified.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, um, and I understand that. You know, these upgrade tools are really... Directed, you know, for them, you know, they don't have to know command line scripting to upgrade. It's a graphical user interface, something they're used to, you know, in the modern world as it admins. Again, keeping the identity of your server, avoiding all the manual back end workarounds they'd have to do to change, you know, the way that server name populates to the rest of the environment. We have really, you know, engineering has done a fabulous job making this product such an easy upgrade path for those NetWare loyal customers. But I I want to point out the other reasons the product is better than NetWare, because the features like dynamic storage technology, domain services for Windows, they're not available when you deploy on the NetWare kernel. They're really only available for customers who are upgrading to the Linux side. And we think that they're so powerful and so compelling that you're really leaving a lot on the table when you stick with the network upgrade path right now. The services are just so much more compelling when you upgrade to OES on Linux. So Jason, I want to jump back to a comment that you made earlier,
1: which you talked about drivers and certification. I've had a couple people ask me about why there's no more yes certification for network and how that works now with OES.
3: Let's let's roll back in time a little bit. So The yes certification program was the first of its kind in the industry. We had this entire certification program about certifying network against hardware, and the rest of the industry actually copied Novell, which is great, you know. After all, flatter- mimicry is the sincerest form of flattery. I'm paraphrasing badly there, apologies to. Anyway, so the reason there's no more yes program is because it's not required. Netware, let's face it, is transitioning to open enterprise server. It's worth remembering, with Netware, nobody bought the Netware kernel. Anyone that's heard me, anyone that's heard me present, seen me present, or even listened to Novello Open Audio, will know I've always said, NetWare was about the sum of the services provided by the operating system, and that is the same with Open Enterprise Server today. People don't buy a kernel, you know, maybe if you're, you know, a micro-kernel manufacturer or a cell phone manufacturer, you might. When you're buying an operating system, you're buying the services. So what we're doing with Open Enterprise Server is we've split those services from NetWare and made them available on top of SUSE Linux. And that is the key to this new certification program. We're certifying the SUSE Linux kernel on the hardware. Open Enterprise Server is the services running on top of that kernel, so there is no need to certify those services because we're not interacting directly with the hardware. You know, The Novell Storage Services file system, it is a file system on Linux that's it. It has, you know, all the metadata and everything else associated with NSS that all our customers know and love. It has the Novell Core Protocol tie-ins, that kind of thing. But we're not interacting directly with the hardware so we don't need that additional certification program. So, what's happening is the fact that the hardware manufacturers are transitioning from the ES program to the SUSE Linux certification program, and they're a lot happier because they're doing one certificate that covers SLES 10 and it covers Open Enterprise Server.
1: And not only that, we actually have an interview that's going to come up right around when this is released, talking to Greg Kroa-Hartman about some of the cool new advances he's made recently, and he's going to make a couple cool announcements about what exactly is happening with drivers under SLES and under Linux in general. I'll have to listen to that. Great. So, Sophia and Jason, thanks a lot for uh, coming in and talking to us today. Thanks for having
3: us. Eric Randy, it's a pleasure as be here you.
0: I know myself and a lot of our listeners have been waiting for domain services for Windows for a long time. I think this will be a great advance, and and this will be fun to fiddle with. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to actually install it and play with it
1: yet, although I've been talking to them about this for over 18 months, so I'm stoked to actually get a chance to play with it. The other thing is the dynamic storage technology. I mean, being able to really prioritize what stuff is stored on the expensive sans or your expensive storage versus what is stored on, you know, maybe slower, older storage, I think that that is just killer technology. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on this episode of Open Audio, and
0: we'll see you next time. See ya. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International, as well as Novell Incorporated. Most of our content is directed by our listener community, so please send us your feedback by email at openaudio at novell.com or by leaving comments on our website at novell.com openaudio. That's it for this time. Have a good one.